This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. As always, before we get into the episode, Olivia, wonderful to see you. We're recording late tonight. My late night partner in crime. How has your week been? How's everything going? This week's been great. It's going by really slow and I'm very tired this week. Um, The delirium might kick in tonight. So yeah, we'll be entertained. But I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? How was your week? My week has been the same, very slow. I am excited about the delirium. I think it always makes for a great episode. So if you're listening to this, buckle your seatbelts because it might go off the rails. But I think I'm just geared up. This episode is coming out the Monday before Thanksgiving. I think both of us may just be ready for that three-day work week, have some time off. So it's just kind of creeping by. So if you're listening and you're in that same boat. Hopefully this week goes by really quick for you. You get some nice holiday time, a nice long weekend. But I don't know about you, but I am so ready for it. We just need to make sure that the travelers are listening to the podcast from Monday and Wednesday while they're traveling for their Thanksgiving visits with family. Yeah, show your grandma the podcast. Be like, hey, grandma, you like murder shows? You ever heard of murder court? Let's yeah. <laughs> listen to this podcast. It's a great conversation piece at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Yeah, who wouldn't want to talk about the Texas Candyman while carving a turkey with your family? Or talk about Willie Pickton, the pig farmer. I mean, come on. Have a nice piece of ham. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> That's staying in the episode. In all realness, John, what is something that you're thankful for? Well, obviously, I am thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my wife and being able to be a father to a wonderful kid and I've got a lot to be thankful for, good friends, good people in my life. I am extremely thankful for you, Olivia, for this podcast, for having the opportunity to partner with you to do this every week and for our listeners and just thankful that this resonates and means 
as much to the people who listen to it regularly as it does to us who put it out. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys for listening to the show. Really hope it's a wonderful holiday for you. I don't know if you have anything to add to that or if I'm just going to do the sappy by myself. But I mean, John, the only thing that I could add to that you didn't mention is we can be thankful for our health as well. I've really been on a journey this year to run this marathon, putting my health first, mental health, physical health, all the health. Um, but I am very thankful for you, for this podcast, for taking a chance on me. Um, I'm thankful for your family that they allow you to spend a few hours with me a couple times a week on Zoom. Um, and I'm thankful for my family and my friends as well. But definitely, we wouldn't be here without our listeners. So we're very thankful for all of you. Yes. And that's enough of the sap. Okay. Yeah. You guys are listening to this episode for a true crime case. So last week, we were talking about a cold case out of Minnesota. This week is my week, and I have to tell you, Olivia, I was not familiar with this case before I started researching it, but as I went through, I was like, this is crazy. There's a lot of twists and turns, so I'm really excited to present it to you and get your feedback. I'm really excited to hear what the listeners think. What do you think? Should we just jump into it? Yeah, let's get started. All right. Well, this week's story begins in the small town of St. John's, Arizona. On August 13th, 2009, 16-year-old Ricky Flores was reported missing by his mother. According to friends and family, Ricky was a good kid, but he had his issues with authorities. Flores had gotten into trouble in ways that rebellious teens tend to do, breaking curfew, smoking, drinking, fighting with his mother, and dabbling in drug use. Now, around the time of his disappearance, Flores had recently gotten released from a juvenile detention center for some minor drug charges. Because of his past and his history of drug use, authorities weren't very worried about his disappearance, thinking that he may be staying at a friend's or just got too high to come home. But Ricky's family, they weren't convinced. Ricky had recently had a child and was in love with his girlfriend. According to his brother, Nick Flores, Ricky wanted to turn things around and be a good father to his newborn baby. He told his mother that he wasn't making promises anymore, but would show his change with his behavior and actions. So when Ricky didn't come home, they were immediately concerned. And as I was going through and researching this, Olivia, I don't know, you know, in high school, if you knew people like this, but I found myself thinking back to a lot of friends that I had when I was growing up. And it's like, oh, I, I knew like this kid. I knew like three or four of this kid. They were just rebellious. They got in trouble. But, you know, eventually something happened that made them kind of turn their life around. So I didn't know if that was a similar thought for you as we were going through this, but I was just like picturing people that I knew as I was going, going through the research. Yeah. I mean, everybody has someone they know that, you know, is similar to Ricky. Now St. John's is a small town with a population of about 3000 people. Because of this word of Ricky's disappearance spread rather quickly. In fact, it also began to spread to the neighboring town of Springerville. Springerville was also a small town with a population of about 2,500 people. Both towns were filled with people who were working nine to five jobs, blue collar ranchers and construction workers who helped their neighbors. Like any other small town, there was crime, but petty crime, maybe a theft, a drunken public charge or an occasional drug charge. But it was a safe town where neighbors didn't lock their doors and everybody knew everybody. But the disappearance of Ricky Flores, along with two other mysterious events in the two years prior, had the community on edge. Bum, bum, bum. Now, I don't know if it was the same for you when you lived in Iowa or at any point when you moved into New Orleans, but I very much remember like we didn't lock the door at my house when I was a kid. 
We slept with the windows open. I always kind of locked my door just because I grew up that way. But there'd be times where it'd be like, no big deal. I could leave my purse in the car. I could go do whatever. Leave my purse, leave my bag, leave everything just in the car, on the front seat. And nobody messed with anything. Sleep with the windows open. Yeah, and the lady who lived next door to us, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but she ran a daycare. So we would constantly have people thinking that they were coming into my neighbor's house, just like opening the door to my house and be like, oh, sorry, wrong house. <laughs> but it was just, you know, it was a suburb. When I was a kid, it just, it just never even occurred. Now as an adult, I'm like, oh, that is ridiculous. Like I get out of my bed to make sure that my doors are locked before I set my alarm because I'm like, did I lock them? I got to make sure I locked them. You know what I mean? So it's Yeah, that's why our podcast is check the locks, remember? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So this kind of resonated with me when I was like, oh, like I know what that life is like because we live that way, you know? Yeah. Now in April of 2007, 72-year-old William Stoney McCarriger stopped answering his phone calls. A friend of McCarriger, Louis LaRue, said that at the time Stoney had been talking about committing suicide after experiencing some traumatic events in his life. According to LaRue, Stoney was attempting to drink himself to death and had recently had a stroke. When he and other friends could not reach Stoney, LaRue decided to stop in and check on him. He entered the home to find McCarriger in the bedroom. Thinking he was sleeping or passed out drunk, LaRue approached his friend to find his body was cold and gray. McCarriger was dead. A small amount of blood was coming from McCarriger's mouth and pulled up beneath him. LaRue immediately notified authorities who rushed to the scene, and as police investigated, they quickly realized that they were dealing with the victim of a murder. They had noticed that the killer had cut holes in the window screens of the home. Stoney McCarriger was shot in the head as he slept. Police began to look into why anyone would have had motive to kill Stoney. He had moved to the small town in Arizona around 2000. McCarriger would hire local teens to do work and other odd jobs around his ranch. Some of the boys alleged that Stoney McCarriger had molested them. However, the murder remained unsolved. So again, as I'm researching, I'm just thinking about this small town that has this huge history of like neighbors helping neighbors, everybody knows everybody. And then all of a sudden you've got a murder, you've got a teenager who's gone missing. I can imagine that the air in these two towns would probably be pretty tense. Like it would feel like something was shifting. Yeah, because at this point it's either some random stranger has come into your small town and who knows if they'll strike again, or you have the fear of someone in the small town who is able to commit a murder. And that's even, I think, a little more unsettling. It's like watching Scooby-Doo. Right. It was old man Withers. So I don't yeah. watch it. You are like legit disturbed by Scooby-Doo as an yes. adult, which yes. I find mildly amusing. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's my daughter's favorite show. She's like, I want to watch Scoob. We like the live action movies. We like the cartoons. She's all about it. She sleeps with the stuff Scooby-Doo. And you're like, nope. no. <laughs> my nephews used to think it was pretty entertaining as well we used to like just put it on the tv just so that i could see that scooby-doo was on the tv like hold your eyes open yeah you have to watch it and live here yeah Keep your right? eyes open. it's just the concept behind it anyways let's hear about this next disappearance well, in March of 2009, two years after Stoney McCarriger's murder, 60-year-old Daniel Atkin was reported missing. Atkin was a Vietnam vet and described as having hearing issues. He was well-known in the community and easy to get along with. He would ride into town on his Harley or in his Corvette, and again, 
the disappearance of Acton took the community by surprise and left them feeling pretty shaken. Now, at this point, police eventually began to investigate the disappearance of Ricky Flores. To start, they began to look into the day that Flores never returned home. He was last seen with a 21-year-old friend named William Willie Inman. Willie Inman was a good friend of Ricky Flores. Flores' mother would provide Inman with food, clothes, and money if he needed it. Inman even called her mom. On the day of his disappearance, Inman and Flores headed out to Inman's family ranch about 15 miles from Springerville to go shooting. Once they learned this information, police immediately wanted to interview him. Inman told the authorities that he had taken Flores to the ranch along with Inman's girlfriend, 44-year-old Stormy Williams. According to Inman, he and Flores discussed his drug problem and Inman said that he had urged him to stay away from that life. As they were driving back into town, Inman told police that Flores received a phone call and had to leave. According to Inman, Flores got out of the car and that was the last that he had seen of him. After the interview, the sergeant working the case remembered a traffic stop involving Willie Inman from 2009. Inman had been stopped with his friend Joseph Roberts driving a high-end Camaro with no license plate. At the time of the stop, the vehicle was impounded and sat for several months. And another detective recalled seeing a man driving that same Camaro around all the time, and he believed the man's name was Daniel. As detectives continued to investigate, more pieces fell into place. Inman shared a property line with Daniel Acton, and he had actually worked on Stoney's ranch. Authorities had one body and two missing persons, and all had some connection to Willie Inman. Olivia, you know that I'm a girl dad. Of course I do, John. You have an adorable four-year-old. That's right. And I have to be honest, I haven't always been great at picking out the cutest outfits for her, but I have found the solution. Now what's that? Great Lakes Kids Apparel. From dresses, pajamas, raglan tees, rompers, and more, Great Lakes Kids Apparel has everything, and my kiddo loves their clothes. But aren't kids' clothes really expensive? And they wear them out and outgrow them so fast. Well, that's the best part. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes. So no matter how hard your child plays, they last. In fact, I have to fight my daughter to take them off long enough just to get them into the wash. That sounds awesome. But do they take forever to ship? No way. Great Lakes Kids Apparel is based out of Ohio and offers fast shipping, usually within two business days. Plus, they offer free shipping on all orders over $50, and you can sign up for their awesome rewards program and earn GLK bucks. Wow, John, that sounds like I need to send out some gifts from Great Lakes Kids Apparel. How do I check them out? All you have to do is head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description to start shopping today. Again, that's GreatLakesKidsApparel.com. And don't forget to use the promo code LOCKS at checkout to save 20% off your first order. So in my research, this is where things started to get really interesting to me because I'm like, this kid's 21. He's got a 44-year-old girlfriend. He's hanging out with a 16-year-old, but somehow he's connected to a military Vietnam vet. He's connected to a 72-year-old living on a ranch. Yes, I know it's a small town, but it just seems like it's a weird kind of connection to people, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's not. There's like at first I was like, okay. I'm having to like scroll back through and see how old each person is because like, you know, learning new names and ages. And then I'm like 44 and I'm like, okay, well then it's with like a 70 something. And I'm like, no, that person is 21. (laughs) So it's very interesting. A lot of moving parts here. 
Yeah, and I wish I could tell you that it gets like more simple as it goes on. <laughs> it does not. You're challenging me tonight. Yeah, and again, this is one of those ones that as I was going through, I was like, it was a struggle for me to kind of keep track of like who's connected to who and how. And then as we go on, it's like, oh, wait, this is happening. So again, it's very interesting. And as it unfolds, I think you're going to be like, what is going on here? Yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of clueless right now. Besides Willie's in it on some way, shape and form. Well, of course, he was brought in again for questioning and detectives learned a little bit more about Willie Inman in that interview. According to Willie, his mother was a drug addict. He was born weighing only one pound and addicted to drugs. Inman shared that drugs had wreaked havoc on his entire family. His aunt and uncle were heavily addicted and the caretakers to his grandfather. They stole money from his bank account and they would use his medication needles to shoot heroin. Inman said that he had passed away from their neglect. He also claimed that he was abused and molested as a child. His dad was his primary caretaker most of his life with his mother drifting in and out. In fact, his father introduced Inman to target shooting and guns became a passion to him. He bragged about owning a Walter P-22, an M-14, shotguns, and even an anti-aircraft gun. Inman would often be seen around town in camo or military fatigues. He claimed that he had been in the military and that he had spent time in Iraq on deployment. Again, another weird level to this, Inman also had an affinity to talk about Nazis. He wore a military cap with an SS insignia medal on it, and according to Inman, they belonged to his grandfather, who he claimed was an SS pilot. So you've got this kid who he's always in military gear. He owns a bunch of guns. He's walking around with, you know, Nazi medals on his hat. No one's like, hey, you shouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't seem like anybody made a big deal about it. He he bragged about his grandfather having like 4,800 kills as a Nazi fighter pilot where like the American record was like 48 kills or something like that. Like he was just super intrigued by that or like for some reason thought that that was a cool thing, which is really dark. I mean, if that kid was my neighbor, I'd be like, Hey man, you want to take off that stupid hat? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Maybe not carry your uh, M14 around the neighborhood. Inman was also asked about Stoney McCarriger's murder, to which he responded he had no idea. It was now August of 2009, and Ricky Flores had been missing for over two weeks. After the interview, detectives were able to secure a search warrant for Inman's home. Police discovered that Inman was actually living with his girlfriend, Stormy Williams. That's too much. That's too many Stormies. Her name is Storm E. Williams. And then we have Stoney. McCarriger. Yeah, there's a lot of... A lot of moving parts here. Keeping up. I'm keeping up. Now, Williams was able to provide and care for herself, but she was believed to have a learning disability or some kind of cognitive impairment. As police knocked on the door to execute the warrant, Willie Inman began to panic. At this point, Williams picked up the phone and called the police to ask why they were on the property. She was clearly upset. Stormy was afraid to leave the house and wanted to know why the police were watching her home. Now, in a clever move, the chief of police in Springerville convinced Williams to have her and Inman come to the police station so they would feel safe. When Stormy and Willie arrived at the station, they were immediately separated. Both were questioned individually. Now, expecting to be protected by the Springerville police, Inman shares that he was being harassed by the St. John's Police Department. Now, remember, St. John's is where Ricky Flores went missing. These two towns are very close to each other. And right. it was St. John's police who was actually there to potentially serve this search warrant. And they just happened to be at the Springville police station. Willie Inman lives in the town of Springerville. So these two towns are very close to each other. 
uh, Ricky Flores lives in St. John's. Willie Inman lives in Springerville. Okay. The St. John's police are now coming to Springerville to execute a search warrant. And he is stating that he feels harassed and feeling that, you know, since Springerville is his hometown, like these police officers will protect him from these other police. You know, these cops shouldn't be here. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. He shared that Ricky Flores was involved in dealing drugs and suggests that his disappearance may have been drug related. During the interview, the Springerville police chief asked Inman about himself. Inman again shared that he had overcome the adversity presented to him by his parents. Inman didn't like drugs and said he had no problem doing what it took to get them off the streets. He also shared that he had a best friend, his dog. Inman appeared to see himself as some kind of hero. He almost saw himself as being equal to the police chief. We both want the same thing, man. We don't want crime. We don't want, you know, these drugs on the street, things like that. Now, again, very skillfully, the police chief continued to ask Inman to tell him more. As he continued, Inman shared his love for the military and his disgust of criminals. He also indicated that in some cases, he held that same level of disgust towards people of other races. In Inman's eyes, he was a vigilante. Meanwhile, a female detective was interviewing Stormy Williams in the other room. Now, as a tactic, the detective told Williams that Inman had confessed to a homicide. It was then that Stormy made a shocking confession of her own. She and Inman had killed Ricky Flores and buried his body outside of town. The game was over, and Inman came clean. According to Inman, he didn't want to kill Ricky Flores, but something had gone wrong on the day that they visited the ranch to practice shooting. Inman told police that he and Flores were shooting at cans when Ricky took a shot at him and struck his father's truck window. Inman took this as a sign of aggression and fired back. He claimed that he didn't want to hit him, but ended up shooting Ricky by mistake. Inman shared that he had dug a shallow grave and dumped the body of Ricky Flores. But when they filled in the grave, parts of his body were still visible. It was at that point that Inman stacked wood on the grave and attempted to burn the body. Inman also drew a map to the burial site for police. But the self-defense story just didn't sit well with detectives. They kept digging, thinking that there was something more. Why would Inman drive the body from Springerville to St. John's only to bury the body in a secluded area? Also, Ricky had just had a baby with his girlfriend and her father stood out to police. Things were about to take another turn. So I wanted to stop right there, Olivia, and kind of talk through this. So apparently Inman is saying, you know, he shot at me. I shot back. You know, this happened in Springerville. I didn't mean to kill him, but I, I killed him. He then loaded up his body and drove north to a whole nother town. And then in my research, he then drove the body an hour south to drop it in a secluded area. So it's like you're traveling with his body in the car. So there's got to be something else going on. Yeah. And weren't they on Inman's property? They were. You know, if this was just an accident, then just leave him on your property. No one will know. It would make more sense. Right. Yeah. Or like, if not your property, maybe, you know. Right next door. Right. Because we're talking about Arizona. These are huge plots of land potentially. Right. You know what I mean? So something just wasn't sitting right. Now, Jeffrey Johnson was the father of Ricky Flores' girlfriend. Authorities suspected that he was part of a neo-Nazi group, the Aryan Brotherhood. Johnson was a white supremacist, and his daughter having a child with a Hispanic teenager was not a good look for him. Because of this, he wanted Ricky Flores gone, and he offered money to get the job done. Police now believe that Inman had killed Ricky Flores for Jeffrey Johnson. Now, Inman admitted to driving the body from Springerville to St. John's to show Johnson Flores' body. According to Inman, Johnson then told him, 
get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. Here's $20 for gas. He then drove an hour south to bury and burn the body. Now, when the remains of Ricky Flores were found, he was badly burned and he had been shot in the head with a 12-gauge shotgun. Because of this, Ricky was only able to be identified by a tattoo and pins and screws from a previous broken arm. Inman was being charged with murder, but he was refusing to incriminate Jeffrey Johnson. Because of his ties to the Aryan Brotherhood, Inman was afraid that he would not be safe if he shared Johnson's involvement. Because of this, Johnson was never charged with a murder. Instead, he and his wife faced charges of hindering the prosecution in the case of Ricky Flores' death. Jeffrey Johnson was sentenced to seven years in prison while his wife Melissa was given probation. Stormy Williams was not charged due to mental health issues. Now, the death of Ricky Flores had been solved, but police still needed answers for the murder of William Stoney McCarriger and the disappearance of Daniel Acton. Both men were neighbors to Inman, and they believed that they may have a serial killer on their hands. This is just so much right now. Like the twists and the turns, and it's like every time that like the plot thickens, and there's more to be said, and another person comes into the mix. Yeah, and it's really, it feels like kind of a meld of a lot of cases that we've done before. Like yeah. the Michigan Thrill Kill, mm-hmm. they burn the body, right? Um, I mean, Willie Inman. Jerry Inman was the bikini strangler. Willie Pickton was the pig farmer. So it's even like a mashup of their two names. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then you throw in like neo-Nazi groups. And as I was researching, I was like, what is happening here? Like what is going on in these towns? Because this is insane. Yeah, it's a lot. I'm interested to see how it all pans out. Well, police again interviewed Inman, but this time it was in jail. He agreed to share information for things like cigarettes and hamburgers, things that, you know, he wasn't going to be able to get anymore. In these interviews, Inman confessed to the murders of Stoney McCarriger and Daniel Acton. When speaking about the murder of McCarriger, Inman shared that he had shot him through the window screen while he slept. Inman pulled the trigger 12 times. He then ransacked the home for money and valuables. When police asked him why, why would you do this? He again described himself as a vigilante. According to Inman, Stoney was a pervert and an abuser who deserved to die. In his eyes, he was doing his community a service by killing him. Inman then shifted to Daniel Acton, who had been missing for five months at this point. According to Inman, Acton was a drug user and a drain on society. He shared that he believed Acton had actually killed his best friend, his dog. He went to Acton's home to settle the dispute and shot him to death. Willie Inman, the vigilante serial killer, was sentenced in September of 2011. Now, a lot of people in the town thought he's going to get the death sentence. He's going to get life in prison without parole. Inman was given 24 years for all three murders to be served without parole. He'll actually be eligible for release in 2035. That's insane. How is this man able to be released from prison? And he should be relatively young. Yeah, he was 21 at the time of the murder. So at the time he was sentenced, he would have been 22 or 23. I'm sorry. Oh, my gosh. He's going to be out like next year. Well, it's 2035. We still got some time, but. 10 years. Yeah, but it's just. 12 years. He has served half his sentence for killing three people. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I feel like we have done cases where someone has killed fewer people, but gotten like a much harsher sentence. So I'm not sure why. The other interesting thing that I found is I don't know if you remember earlier in the in the story, but I had told you that Inman had gotten pulled over with his friend Joseph Roberts 
in that Camaro. Mm-hmm. Well, Joseph Roberts actually confessed to helping Inman with these murders, and he was actually looking at life in prison as well. But the DA essentially tried to offer him a plea deal without his lawyer present. And because of that, all of the charges against him got dropped. Wow. Yeah. And if you are interested in reading some more about that, I did include a link to that in our sources in the show notes. That was something I wanted to go into a little bit more, but because the charges were dropped, there's not a lot of information about like what he confessed to and things like that. It just never got to that point. But again, I just thought this story was really, really interesting. And I kind of wanted to pick your brain. What do you think as we were going through this? Like, what are your thoughts on the case? It's wild and crazy. And for Inman to not throw Johnson under the bus is crazy to me. Like, it seems like he was hired by Johnson to kill the father of his grandchild, which again, like the bygones be bygones and move on. I mean, when you get into some of these people who are you know, in the white supremacist group, like Emin has no idea who's in prison and who's coming after him. And I mean, my loyalty doesn't run that deep with anybody, especially not someone that's not my family, but I just can't believe that he's going to get out of jail. Well, yeah. And that's what Nick Flores, who was Ricky Flores, brother said was like, at the time Inman was showing up and showing Johnson, this body, like his niece, Ricky Flores, daughter could have been sitting in the home while grandpa was out checking out the body. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's sad. And then also you don't know how wide that network is. You know what I mean? Like you see it in all the movies. It's like the white supremacist groups Mm -hmm. are in the prisons and it's like you get a message to somebody on the inside and then you're not safe. You know what I mean? It's, is it worth snitching to stay alive? You know? Right. And even if you do some time in prison, you're still going to be harassed on the inside by someone who knows somebody. Yeah, and Johnson was sentenced to seven years himself. So I'm not sure where they both served, but you know that could potentially be both of them in the same prison. If you're Willie Inman, you're going in by yourself, and then Johnson is going in the same prison with this automatic network of white supremacists. Yeah. The interesting thing to me is that Inman thought of himself and portrayed himself as this vigilante who was cleaning up his community, but at the end of the day, he's a coward, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's like it's self-preservation or like I killed you because you killed my dog, you know, like or I, I think you killed my dog. It was never even proven that he did it, you know. Yeah, it's just like I'm better than the police. I'm I can do better. I can be the person who saves the day and takes out these bad people, even though he's not doing it about the right way. Yeah, and Inman is on record as saying that he has no guilt about Stoney's death or Daniel Acton's death. He has shown remorse about Ricky Flores because they were friends. But, you know, again, it's just like, you're a coward, man. Like you shot somebody through a window while they were sleeping. You know what I mean? Like you take your friend out, like, Hey, let's go target shooting. You present yourself as like, I'm this like big, brave, cleaning up the streets. I'm a tough guy. And really, you know, you're just weak. A very interesting dynamic as I was going through, I was like, this is such a crazy story. Yeah. This was actually a really good one. I think let's jump into the deadbolt test. I don't think that this is one that's going to score me like a 10 just because there were so many moving parts and different areas of things that I wouldn't be involved in. But I think the twists and turns helps me rank it up there to like a six. But it was definitely a really cool story. Well, that's funny because I was actually going to put it as six as well. And the six for me is the thought that I'm going to hang out with a friend, somebody who I think is a friend, somebody who calls my mom, their mom, somebody that, you know, I'm like, this is one of my best, my best friends and not knowing 
that my quote best friend is getting paid to essentially murder me. Yes. Yeah. So for me, I think I would put that at a six just for that factor, because, you know, when you're with your friends, these are people you trust, people you love. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, Megan, your friend who has been on our show when we were talking about the bikini strangler, it would probably never enter your brain that like, oh, she invited me to dinner. She's probably going to kill me. You right. I mean? Yeah. I mean, I go to dinner at their house all the time. Right. Not what I'm thinking when I'm going over there. Yeah. For me, I think that's what would put it at the six. But yeah, other than that, like, you know, I'm not hiring teenage boys to come work at a ranch or selling drugs to anybody or anything like that. So I don't feel like I would be in his crosshairs. Yeah. Do you know that I was listening to this week's episode and I was like, I feel like John and I, we really just try to disprove who we aren't. Like, I'm not a sex worker. I'm not really doing that. I'm not really doing this. (laughs) It's funny. Or am I? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, no one would ever know. No, I'm just kidding. It's interesting to think about these cases and kind of put yourself in the shoes. In the perspective of it, in the person's shoes. Or, you know, be like, well, if I had myself in this situation... I think it's interesting because people try to live that way. You know what I mean? People are like, well, I can't do this behavior because this is, you know, there's X amount of risk associated with it. You know what I mean? Like you calculate these things in your head. So when you're thinking about these cases, like it's, I think it's natural that you break them down the same way where you're like, well, I'm not a sex worker. So, you know, there's no chance I'm getting in the wrong car. You know what I mean? Or yeah. So that is where we fall on our deadbolt test. Olivia and I are both putting it at a six, but we want to know where does Willie Inman, the vigilante serial killer, fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know by reaching out to us on the socials. Find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. You can find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, what are you doing? Come join, hang out with us. We're in there interacting every single day. Again, say it every week, but it's the best place on the internet. So we would love to have you. Olivia, this case was like an old country road. <laughs> Twists, turns. I need something to clean the palate. You got a five-star review for us? I do. I have a five-star review this week from Elizabeth W. Or it's Lizabeth W. Either way, it's basically Elizabeth without the E. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they said, love this podcast. It's easy to listen to. And John and Olivia work well together and sound like they've known each other forever. Love it. Keep checking the locks. So thank you, Elizabeth W. or Lizabeth W. Um, reach out to us. Let us know who you are. And thank you so much for leaving us a five-star review. Yeah, Elizabeth, Lizabeth, whatever you want to go by, we greatly appreciate you taking the time to leave us that review. I know we say it every week, but these reviews really help us out. They get us in other shows' recommendations. They help us to grow our community, our little family here at Check the Locks. And ultimately, that's what we are looking to do. So thank you so much. Reach out to us again. Hit us up on Instagram, check the locks pod, Twitter, check the locks. Or if you're in our Facebook group, holler at us there. If you are not a social person, totally fine. Head over to checkthelockspod.com. Click the email button. Send us an email. Let us know. We will send you out some goodies. While you're at checkthelockspod.com, don't forget to hit that microphone button and leave us a voicemail. Yeah, it's been like three weeks without one. Unless you have a surprise for me that you haven't told me about. Now, I don't have a voicemail. However, caveat, drum roll, please. We did receive an email this week from our friend Kim, if you know, you know. And Kim was going to leave you a voicemail, Olivia, in her sick voice. But for some reason, she was having issues with her microphone. Kim says that she absolutely loves not only the stories, but also the natural chemistry between us. And she's obsessed with the podcast. Keep up the amazing work. So, Kim... Thank you very much for attempting to leave us a voicemail. 
The email is awesome as well. Yes. We love your kind words and so happy to have you as part of the family. And if you don't know, you need to know, Kim. If you know, you know. If you don't know, now you know. Now you know. Thank you, Kim. I'll take it as a voicemail. I appreciate it. And Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the show, what's the best way to do that? Well, you should hop on the Apple Podcast app, go to our homepage for Check the Locks, scroll down to where you see all five stars, click all five stars, leave us a review, tell us what you think. We love to hear from you guys, and hopefully you'll be the lucky person who gets their review read on our next show. And if you've already left us a review, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. If you have not, again, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us that review. It means the world to us. If you want to financially support the show, we do have a Patreon. Shout out to Trish and Stephanie, who both joined our Patreon this week. Super happy to have you guys. We got tons of extra stuff over there. We're doing stickers. We're doing mugs. We're going to be doing some listener request episodes, some really cool stuff. So head over to patreon.com slash check the locks if you're interested in financially supporting the show. If you can't financially support the show, listening to the show is absolutely more than enough. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. And if you want to share the show with your friends and family, that helps us just as much, if not more. So thank you, whether you're listening, whether you're financially supporting, however you are engaging with us, it means the world to us. Thank you so much. We appreciate it more than you know. That is it for this week's episode, but make sure you are joining us on Wednesday for Check the Locks presents True Crime for the Short on Time. We will see you all next week with another truly terrifying true True crime crime case. case. (laughs) But until then, don't forget to check check the the locks. locks. We'll see you next week.